everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Bulletproof Hygiene. I'm so excited to have you joining us this week because we have an awesome return guest, um, hopefully that we're going to hear more and more from as we progress. But tonight I am with Tom Viola. He is the renowned and highly credentialed pharmacologist that is going to help us understand a little more about diabetes and the medications that are used to treat it and what we need to know as clinicians. And I know that we did a deep dive in on diabetes and the oral systemic connections and periodontal disease and all of that several episodes back. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, I'm going to encourage you to go back and visit episode 40. But before we really dig in tonight, Tom, I have a question for you. And I want to encourage you as listeners to go check Tom out on Instagram. So he's got a really great page. It's pharmacology declassified. And he just has some really great information very engaging. And in fact, I saw one and I'm like, I have to ask him about this. Tom, you had made a post about correlation between amoxicillin allergies and implant failure. And I just, I had to know more about that. And I wanted to, our listeners to hear it too. So tell me what you found on that. Yeah. So the study was done uh, as a matter of fact, in one of the colleges where I teach in New York University uh, School of Dentistry. And it went about trying to determine why it is that it seems that patients who have penicillin allergy and who are treated with other antibacterials other than amoxicillin seem to have a greater failure rate of their implants than patients who are, don't have a penicillin allergy and get amoxicillin as their prophylaxis. And as it turns out, the, the research was done because of that very premise. What is it about using amoxicillin that seems to, anyway, ensure dental implant success. And as a matter of fact, what the study really determined was it wasn't that amoxicillin necessarily determines implant success. It was that those patients with penicillin allergies are given alternate agents. So things like uh, clindamycin, azithromycin, even uh, metronidazole as an adjunct. And it turns out those patients actually had a greater chance of implant failure than those who took amoxicillin. So it's not amoxicillin that makes the implant more successful. It's the use of the other agents that maybe makes the implants less successful. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. You learn something new every day. And I'm sure once, you know, now that they've kind of established that, they'll probably hopefully soon figure out why that is. And we'll hear more about that. Yeah. The failure rates were impressive. So, so the researchers found that the dental implants failed in about 17% of the patients who reported a penicillin allergy versus about 8% who didn't have the allergy. So almost, if you want to, you know, it's hard to compare percentages, but it's almost twice as much Interesting. Uh, when, when they had a penicillin allergy. Interesting. And I, I, I read that and I shared that with my docs and I had to ask you because we do, you know, we place implants in our practice and I know typically my doctors will prescribe Keflex. So I, you know, I was like, I, I kind of know about this. Well, since the American Heart Association recently changed the endocarditis prophylaxis guidelines to include cephalexin, 
Uh, you're going to see more of Keflex or Cephalex in, in dentistry than you did before. Uh, as I've always uh, said, I've, I've been a big fan of Keflex for a long time in dentistry. I think uh, Fabi is one of the uh, agents we've overlooked for a long time. And, and I really can't get a good reason why. I mean, honestly, it works just as well as amoxicillin, but uh, has a much lower uh, chance of anaphylaxis if the patient uh, is allergic to penicillin. And, and that's the thing that got me about this study, uh, Carissa, because I'm thinking, man, just give me give me a reason why, something to sink my teeth into as right. why. And it's one of those studies where they don't know. Got <laughs> so it. it. Leaves a little unsettled, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like I said, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll hear more as it goes down the pipeline. So focusing in on diabetes, I just want to throw out, you know, the stat that 37.3 million Americans are said to have diabetes right now, and that's about one in 10 adults. And then the scary aspect is that another one in five don't know they have it. So, you know, it's very prevalent. We're seeing it a lot in our chairs on a daily basis. Um, you know, obviously we're all familiar with the bi-directional relationship between periodontal disease and diabetes, and obviously the importance of maintaining a healthy blood sugar, which as we know, in turn allows the immune system to be functional and promote healing and wellness. Um, but, you know, there's also several oral manifestations that we need to be aware of for just diabetes itself. Um, you know, xerostomia and burning mouth sensation and impaired delayed wound healing, um, you know, obviously an increased incidence and severity of infections, secondary infections, um, fungal infections, salivary gland dysfunction. So there's a lot of different things that come from that. But I also understand there's a lot of side effects and oral manifestations that come from the medications themselves. And I, if I'm being honest, get really overwhelmed because just in kind of preparing for tonight, I was kind of looking to see like, you know, how many medications are out there on the market for diabetes? And oh my gosh, that is overwhelming. Do you, I don't know if you know that number off the top of your head, but you know, there's so many different classifications. There are so many drugs. Well, that reaches back to, I think, the, our, our subject matter for our last podcast together, Carissa, which is, you know, how did your patients become so medically complex? You know, and I'm dating myself, certainly, but when I first started as a pharmacist, we basically had one drug. We had a drug called diabetes or propamide, which uh, is certainly right around the time I started. And, and everyone who had diabetes took that drug. It wasn't the best drug, but it was the only drug we had. Well, in right. the 30 plus years subsequent to that, we've done a lot of research and, and we've explored and figured out a lot of ways to lower blood glucose from different vectors. And with every new vector came a new drug. So yeah, right now we probably have six different classes of medications that we could use as antihyperglycemic uh, anti agents. Uh, and that, that's not including insulin. So, right. you know, we've got, a, we have a true arsenal, which is wonderful, but it also adds to the medical, medical complexity of each patient we see. Yeah. And I, you know, I, feel like it's hard. We're hard pressed to find a patient who is diabetic that does not have another comorbidity alongside it. So, you know, I think it's more common than not to see a patient who's taking one or multiple medications for diabetes on top of something for high blood pressure and cholesterol and, you know, maybe sleep issues and depression. And you start combining all that and, you know, I, I had a new patient the other day that was just listing off, you know, medication after medication after medication. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't even know what all of these do. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about what, 
what do we need to be considerate of for diabetic medications alone? Well, I think the first thing we need to realize is, and I think you said it very well before, Carissa, um, patients don't know they have it. The, right. the American Diabetes Association estimates that, that there's three times as many pre-diabetics as diabetics. Yes. <clears throat> if all those di pre-diabetics become diabetics, we're in a lot of trouble. Yes, yes. Uh, right? But the sad part is a lot of them, unfortunately, will pass away before they become diagnosed with diabetes, either because they never got diagnosed or won't get diagnosed, they don't see a doctor on a regular basis, or get this, they succumbed to the after effects of having prediabetes without ever having get, been diagnosed as diabetic, but still suffering the same fate. So it's very sad when you think that we could be treating more patients if we just got rid of this moniker of prediabetes and just said, look, anybody who has an, a normally elevated blood glucose for no good reason is probably diabetic. Let's, let's, you know, let's just call it what it is. Right. And then we could start treatment earlier and be more aggressive and more effective, I hope, in, in, in managing their diabetes. But it's this thing of, well, let's wait until it gets really bad. Then we'll call it diabetes. And then, you know, by that point, you've already, you know, you've got several disease states that have or comorbidities that have also crept in. And, and it's more difficult to, to try to reverse the stream. Uh, I will tell you that uh, we've not done such a great job in treating diabetes until recently. Uh, I can remember when I first got started uh, as a pharmacist, our main focus uh, for treating diabetes type 2, diabetes mellitus, was to increase insulin output. And we thought, rightfully so at the time, that diabetes type 2 was caused by too little insulin. But we were looking at essentially a snapshot. Okay, we're looking at a patient who has type 2 diabetes, who's, let's say, a little older. And what did we find when we did the testing? We found that their insulin levels were low. Well, it seems pretty easy to me that if you find a patient with a disease and one of the outstanding characteristics of that disease is there's too little insulin, we'll treat them by giving them a medication to help them make more insulin. But really what we needed to do is take a longer look back and realize that diabetes type 2 was not a disease of too little insulin here, it was a disease of too much insulin resistance here, which led ultimately to their pancreatic beta cells, SLS cells dying off, getting burned out, which that then led to them having too little insulin. Right. So that revolutionized our approach to treating diabetes. Instead of being so reactive, we became more proactive. Yet having just said that, we're not proactive enough because we have all those uh, pre-diabetics out there. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I'm seeing more and more patients now that are coming in that have the glucose, glucose monitors. And I think that's been very helpful, helpful. I've had some patients say they've had great success with that and really understanding it helps them understand, you know, what they can do and what works for their body. And, you know, because it is, I always say all the time in dentistry, no one, we cannot apply a cookie cutter to dentistry. And I think it's the same thing for medical health and medications that are used and, you know, I'm a big, big believer in health coming from, you know, taking care of ourselves. You know, I, I think so much of diabetes could be reversed with eating nutrition, you know, eating healthy foods, moving our bodies, getting, you know, good hydration. And um, unfortunately, I feel like there's a large contingent of the population that's not willing to do that. 
Um, instead, they're more willing to, you know, just take a pill. And even then, when you look at the stats, um, you know, it, the stats look like I, I think I saw 50% of patients who get medic who have prescriptions don't take them regularly as directed. So one of my thoughts is how do we as clinicians and providers help our patients, help encourage them and motivate them and understand why, how these medications work and why they're important for them to take them regularly to maintain themselves. Right. You can make that same argument for antihypertensives and every other medication for chronic illness, because it's not an acute illness. The symptoms are not acute. They're chronic, they're long-term. And so I don't have to worry about taking that medication today. So for example, if I had an acute illness, like an infection, man, I'd know if I didn't take my antibiotic that day because it would get profoundly worse in a short period of time. But a chronic condition like diabetes or hypertension, well, heck, you know, I can let that go because um, I don't see the immediate after effects of not taking that medication. I'll only see those effects down the line a long time away from now. So therefore, it's, it's not as urgent for me to take my medications every day. It's not as urgent for me to be proactive. You know, it's something I'll need to worry about later on. So to, to your point from before, that the attitude seems to be, come save me versus let me save myself. Right. I, you know, do the right things proactively so I don't need someone to come save me later. Uh, and, and that, I think, has manifested in the way we look at medications to treat diabetes. So to go back to what we said before about looking at it from a very, you know, reactive standpoint and saying, okay, you don't have enough insulin. Let's give you a drug to bolster your insulin production. And then and in the end, just burn out your pancreatic insulin cells faster. Let's go back in time and say, okay, what we should have done, what we will do for future generations is treat insulin resistance earlier on with what though? So now you have to create a new medication, right? We don't have one. So we come up with several. And of course, the one that really matters most to people is metformin. Right. Now, metformin is a great drug. It does wonderful things for us. It lowers insulin resistance. And that ultimately means what? I'm going to treat type 2 diabetes much more effectively and efficiently than I would have done with a medication later on. But to, to get back to your question, how do I impose upon people the importance of taking their medications? Sometimes it just falls in our lap. And yep. with metformin, go figure. One of the side effects of metformin is weight loss. And if that's not positive reinforcement for taking your drug every day, I don't know what is. So it lowers your weight. It lowers your, you know, bad cholesterol, if you will, and improves your good cholesterol. It has all these good effects. So yeah, you know what? I don't mind taking this drug every day. See, now the mindset's changed to, well, yeah, if I do it now, I get the benefits now and I get benefits later. What's so bad about that? Uh, the problem comes up though, when your patients can't take metformin. And, and unfortunately, that's because they waited too long to start, okay? They're one of those pre-diabetics that waited until it got too bad to finally see their doctor and, and, and get started on the road to treatment. But now they have liver disease or kidney disease, and they're not good candidates for metformin. Okay, now why? So you could, as a patient, you can approach it fatalistically and say, well, darn if I do, darn if I don't, I won't do anything. You know, I, I'm hopeless. But that spurs the research for new drugs. And where do we get this new batch of drugs from? The most unlikely place ever, the Gila monster. Now, if you don't know what a Gila monster is, don't feel bad. I didn't either. Although that's I the, get, That's a lizard, right? The lizard, yes. Yes. 
lives in the uh, southwest part of the United States. And I've got friends who live out there and always telling me, you know, come on out to the canyon. We'll uh, hike down to the bottom and we'll sleep out under the stars. And me being a city boy, I always say the same thing. Are you crazy? I'm not sleeping out under many stars. Cold-blooded reptiles seek out warm places to sleep at night, <laughs> like my sleeping bag with me in it. I'll be in the cabin. Maybe I'll see you in the morning. Maybe I won't. It's a toss-up, right? But the point of that is the Gila monster has survived in the desert for a long time. How? Food is so scarce. Resources are so scarce. How does this Gila monster survive? Every time the Gila monster eats a meal, it has a hormone in its saliva that delays its gastric emptying time and limits the amount of rise in its blood glucose. That means that meal is going to last a long time. And that means that Gila monster is satiated with a smaller meal. So the Gila monster doesn't have to eat a lot, doesn't get too big and eats itself into extinction because there's not enough food to support it anymore. So Looking at it from a very long historical perspective, you can see what's done gone right for the Gila monster was this hormone allowed it to curb its appetite enough to eat small meals and live on the resources that were available to it in the desert. What the heck does this have to do with diabetes in humans? Well, the point was biologists know that us humans are not far off the reptilian tree. Some of us more than others, granted, but <laughs> so so... All right, if the Gila monster makes the hormone, do we make the hormone? I mean, we never thought to look. And now we do, and we find that, yes, humans do make a similar hormone called incretin. But guess what? Type 2 diabetics don't have enough. So providing the type 2 diabetic with an, a drug that mimics that incretin hormone would help put, it, put that blood sugar back in where it belongs, right? Would help, you know, kind of, correct the and set the ship on the right course and yeah that's why you can't watch tv now without seeing five commercials for ozempic and trulicity in 10 minutes right because they're such blockbuster drugs it all came from a gila monster's spit believe it or not interesting okay? i did not know that yeah yeah i just had a patient um last week actually who was doing ozempic uh injection and was saying that um she had a lot of gastric issues with that. Um, and said that she had, and again, this is what you find if, you know, if patients start having those side effects, they tend to not want to take them. So she had determined for herself that she was going to cut her dosage in half, which she said did make, you know, helped her from a GI perspective and she was still losing some weight and, you know, things are looking better, but yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. The active ingredient in Ozempic works so well and also works very well to help promote weight loss so much so that the manufacturer of some glutide, the manufacturers of Ozempic uh, reached out to the FDA and gained approval for uh, that drug for weight loss. It's sold under the brand name Wagovi. Uh, it's in short supply right now. It's hard to get, but the ultimate point there is these drugs have positive reinforcement built in. Again, if I take a drug every day, the way I'm supposed to, the way my doctor tells me to take it, I lose weight. I don't see a downside to this. And man, if I could do the same thing for antihypertensive medications and other medications people take for chronic illnesses, if I could give them that kind of positive reinforcement every time, who knows, you know, it would really turn around uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the sort of bad roads we're on when it comes to uh, managing chronic diseases. Yeah. Tell me what we should know or what we should look for. You know, like I said, I know a lot of these medications can cause some side effects from an oral manifestation standpoint. 
what are we most commonly, what's, what is at the cause, I guess, for things like decreased salivary flow? Are those all of the diabetic medications or is that a certain classification or what do we see there? Well, believe it or not, that's the good part about these medications, Chris, that they really don't cause oral manifestations. As a matter of fact, the disease itself is more difficult on the mouth than, than the medications used to treat it. So with, with drugs like the Inquitin mimetics, like the drugs they talked about, like Ozempic and Trulicity, uh, you really don't see much in the way of manifestations. Even xerostomia is not that big a deal. The, the one thing you do see, though, is pancreatitis. Uh, you see some issues um, uh, with uh, dyspepsia. So some people, as you said, have, have GI issues. And that could indirectly affect the oral cavity because people may make changes in the nutritional uh, uh, selections and they may favor, let's say, uh, carbohydrates versus proteins and fats, which are more difficult to digest. So an indirect effect, certainly, but not actually any direct oral manifestations that we can pin on some of these newer medications. Even some of the older medications uh, like gliburide and glipizide, other than xerostomia, which was you know, relatively uh, uh, an issue, not much, uh, you didn't see uh, many uh, oral manifestations that you can directly attribute to uh, the medications. And I'm glad for that because yeah. I don't need to give patients one more reason not to take their medications. Right. What are the surgical considerations that we need to take? You know, I know a lot of, a lot of, um, when we're doing implants or extractions or things like that, obviously for diabetics, that needs to be a big consideration because we want to make sure that things are healthy. We know they have delayed healing. Um, I know when we're doing sedation, typically we will have our patients fast. So talk to me about what we need to know for patients that are on these types of medications for those procedures. Right. So, okay. First off, and I'm glad you mentioned it about fasting. So we've got to make sure that we, we, we try to follow a script in dentistry, right? And then, and it's for good reason for that, because we don't want to miss anything. We don't want to forget everything. We want to be very consistent in the instructions we give our patients. So we tell our patients to fast because we don't want obviously them to, to have any vomitus during the procedure. Wonderful. But remember diabetics are a special case because they can't necessarily fast, right? Uh, because they need a certain amount of carbohydrate intake, uh, but it depends on really what type of diabetic. If it's a type one diabetic, fasting is even more problematic because you know they're they're really tied to a certain carbohydrate count, number of insulin units uh, in their pump, you know that sort of thing. You know, constant uh, glucose monitoring. But type two diabetics, they they can have a little more leeway, a little more wiggle room. But again, we're always worried about hypoglycemia because the stress of the procedure. Uh, even if they are somewhat sedated, the stress of just getting in the chair, just getting to the procedure uh, can wipe out their stores of glycogen in their muscles pretty quickly. And now the tank's empty and uh, they're, they're crashing. They're having a hypoglycemic episode uh, during, during or before the procedure. So we want to encourage them to, to eat to up to a certain point before the procedure, but to, to think about maybe not taking their medications uh, that morning. So that way they, they don't have that potential for hypoglycemia. They may get hypoglycemic anyway, again, from the stress of the procedure or sitting in the chair, but at least uh, that, that medication dose won't be on board to increase the chance of that happening. Uh, uh, other considerations are the fact that we always need a source of glucose handy, right? So I often say to dental offices, make sure you've got a, a source of carbohydrates handy in case the patient does get a hypoglycemic episode. 
But we sometimes go with the wrong way there. We go with things like soda. Uh, we go with, you know, candy and, and, and we go with maybe orange juice. All of those are not glucose, sucrose, fructose, but not glucose. You need glucose. So, all right, well, I'll use the, you know, uh, the glucose tablets. Well, those chalky things, if you can manage to get one of these, those things down, I'd be very impressed. They're, they're not easy to use. I mean, I would recommend the glucose gel. It's readily available. It's relatively inexpensive. You keep it in the office and you just, you know, kind of squeeze it in the patient's mouth and, and they get that, you know, instant glucose uh, absorption that we're looking for. But again, if the patient is not conscious enough to chew or swallow, if we're worried about aspiration, then we got to go with glucagon. Glucagon is injectable. It's like, I like to call it anti-insulin. So you inject it the same way, but instead of lowering your blood sugar, it raises your blood sugar by releasing stores of glycogen in your muscles. If you still have glycogen on board. So that's the risky part. Okay. But uh, glucagon is injectable, difficult. You have to mix it. There are some newer versions that are a little easier, um, but not for the faint of heart and definitely not to, for the hygienist. This is where you get your doc involved and you right. work together yes. as a team. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And, and, you know, it just makes sense to me that, you know, if we're performing, you know, procedures like this and, and maybe even just general in the office, what are your thoughts on having a glucose monitor in the office just so that you can monitor how a patient's doing if, if you start having issues or if you're doing sedation? Yeah, I think it depends on the kind of practice you have and the type of procedures you do. I would say that if any, if I have a patient coming in, if I'm in a type of office that does conscious sedation, that does, you know, surgeries, I, I can never be prepared enough. And I think, right. I think patients recognize that, you know, the, the level of acumen that patients have now about medical procedures has increased dramatically. People are very much concerned about what goes on in an office and what goes on during a, a medical procedure, a dental procedure. So I don't think they'd be too upset if you had a pulse oximeter handy, right? I don't think they'd be too upset if you took their blood glucose. And, and there are some states like Connecticut allow uh, dentists to, uh, to take A1Cs. So, so we can be more involved in the process. And we can be more involved in monitoring the patient both from a long-term perspective as well as at that moment when we're doing procedures. But you've got to be prepared for a medical emergency. I don't think a glucometer is a bad idea. I also think keeping an eye on the patient's numbers through their perspective, ask them, you know, what was your latest A1C? What was your latest blood glucose? You know, when you drew your numbers, where, where are you? Because that way you get a good sense of the potential pitfalls. Uh, if someone tells me, you know, they regularly get their A1C done and it's 13, well, I'm saying, okay, they're not doing such a good job managing their blood glucose and they have friable blood vessels for sure. They probably have maybe some kidney involvement. So Every medication I use in dentistry gets cleared through the kidneys. That may involve some dosing adjustments that are necessary, right? So I look at that. But if someone says to me, uh, my A1C is usually in the fives. Well, to me, that means you've done a great job in managing yeah. your blood glucose and you're not as uh, likely to have an emergency. And more than likely, your blood vessels are, are doing pretty well and you'll have minimal complications after the procedure. Yeah. Um, talk to me about anesthetics and diabetics with depending, are there different anesthetics we should use based off the medications they're taking, or does it have more to do with where their A1C levels are? I think with diabetics, it's not so much the A1C as it is their, their level of pain tolerance. So uh, I've noticed, and there's nothing that's, that's concrete about this. It's really anecdotal for a cycle, I'll tell you that up front. 
but I've seen that patients that are that are uh, diabetic, that uh, type two diabetic, especially whose A1Cs are elevated, uh, are have more again more friable tissues, blood vessels. They don't respond very well. They don't heal very well. Uh, their you know their wound healing is off. Certainly, their their uh, their increased risk of infection is is always you know a risk. And ultimately, what that means to me is I'm, I'm more cautious. Okay, so. Uh, what about local anesthesia? And can I do something if if they're more likely to feel pain because the, it's going to be a more difficult procedure for them? I'm going to have a more difficult time getting them anesthetized. Um, should I choose one uh, anesthetic agent over another? Well, I will tell you that we've got a very limited arsenal in dentistry. We always have had a limited arsenal. I mean, the number five comes up in dentistry all the time. We have five anesthetic agents. We have five analgesic agents. We have five anti-infectives. That, that's our arsenal. Good, but very limited. Okay, so what are we going to use in this situation for anesthesia? My gut always tells me go with septicane. Uh, now, I wouldn't use it for a mandibular block, obviously, because I'm worried about the potential for paresthesia. But septicane is probably the best anesthetic agent we have because it's incredibly fat-soluble. It penetrates tissue very well. And remember that every cartridge of local anesthetic contains acid. The more cartridges of anesthetic you add, the more acid you're adding to the tissue and further burdening the buffering capacity of the tissue. So at the end of the day, we all know that acid in the tissue makes anesthetics not work. So here, less is more, as in less cartridges. That means, well, then I better use a more concentrated anesthetic solution to get more molecules in there with less cartridges. And again, that's why septicane works so well, because it's 4%. And because, uh, again, it comes with epinephrine. Now, you might say, oh, can't use epinephrine because epinephrine will drive up blood sugars. We can't do that in a diabetic patient. This is the same argument I've had many times with myself and with some people who, colleagues of mine who say, yeah, we can't use epinephrine in diabetics. And I say, if you don't use the epinephrine, you can't make the anesthesia profound enough. It will wear off quicker, which means you're going to add more injections. That has a dual negative effect. Number one, you're adding more acid, more cartridges equals more acid. And number two, the patient feels pain. And so they're going to get a dose of epinephrine anyway from their adrenal glands called, you know, adrenaline. So what did you really accomplish? You, you didn't accomplish anything. You might as well use the epi. So the anesthesia is more profound. There's no breakthrough pain. There's no surge of adrenaline. Overall, the patient gets less epinephrine, in my opinion, if you just use the epi. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I just, uh, I did a podcast, uh, actually the previous episode was about, uh, blood pressure and epinephrine with, you know, really high blood pressure and, and paying attention to that. And I know, obviously, like I said before, you know, so many of the comorbidities of diabetes, we're going to see those patients with high blood pressure. So, uh, you know, that you got that part that factors into, there's so much to consider. Well, that's the thing. And I'm, and I'm glad you brought it up because when we talk about diabetes, we tend to be like diabetic centric, like, okay, let's look at, you know, just diabetes, but we have to factor in a lot of the comorbidities. The two I like to talk about the most are kidney disease and, and cardiovascular disease. Now, kidney disease is tough because we know that excess blood sugar puts a burden on the kidneys and ultimately that can cause kidney failure and stage renal disease. And some medications like the ACE inhibitors are actually used to bolster kidney function, to, to preserve kidney function in diabetics 
even if they don't have hypertension. So you might see patients on lisinopril, for example, that take it not because they have hypertension, but because they've got potentially kidney damage from their diabetes. But at the same time, let's talk about cardiovascular disease and hypertension, because we know that there's that connection between, you know, I call it the triad, periodontal disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, right? All systemic inflammation. So if I know I've got my patient uh, who has cardiovascular disease, I know they, they have one of three. They probably have hypertension. They probably have hyperlipidemia. They may have coronary artery disease. All that spells what? Increased risk of medical emergency during and, and after the procedure. And, and, but also at the same time, more medications, more complexity, right? So uh, I'd be worried about maybe if they're on a blood thinner and maybe they are, you know, well, why would they be on a blood thinner, Viola? Well, let's see. Um, I've got atherosclerosis. I've got, you know, hyperlipidemia. And now I've got this thick sugary substance in my blood, just making my blood much more viscous. That increases the risk, obviously, of uh, calamity, number one. But, but also um, remember that since they're comorbidities, they exist at the same time. If I'm a patient and I get this devastating diagnosis from my physician that not only do I have cardiovascular disease, but now I also have diabetes and I have to take a blood thinner every day, that's a lot to swallow at one time. And maybe I just decide, you know, that's just too much to bear. And I feel just fine. You know, I, I don't need to take medications because in that way, taking medications is almost like an admission that I have those diseases when maybe I don't believe I do. Right. And that's a lot what we talked about last time, Chris. This is where I say it a thousand times and I never shirk from saying it. This is where our hygienists save lives because you're approachable and you're easy to talk to. And if you just impress upon the patient, look, I get it. Nobody wants to take these medications, but I can see in your mouth the obvious signs of the disease. And if I could see it there, I know what's going on in the rest of your body. So it's okay. Take it seriously. You're not alone. Millions of people take these medications. It's time to, to you know, to think about getting serious about your diseases and, and taking control. And you may not think that does much and maybe they'll scoff at you and walk out, but that'll prey on their mind enough to make them say, well, maybe they're right. And I've seen plenty of patients come into the pharmacy and say, okay, I give up. What do I need to do? And, and that's how we all work together to save lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have one other question that I was thinking about because I know, you know, one of the oral manifestations of diabetes can be candidiasis. And obviously that's something that we're looking right at. Um, is there anything we should know about antifungals and diabetic medications, any kind of interactions or anything we should be aware of there? Okay, one more time, it's gonna depend on which medication you use, okay? So we're lucky in dentistry, why? Because in our world, right? Fungal infections are easy to treat, why? We have direct access, okay? We literally have access to the fungus, it's right there in front of us. So we can use topical antifungals to treat fungal infections. And probably our favorite one is the drug Nystatin. Now, nystatin is easy to use. It's pretty self-explanatory. You know, self Stick it in your mouth, hold it there for a while, you know, swish and spit or swish and swallow, really. Uh, but the problem, of course, is what? Keeping the nystatin in your mouth. Uh, if you've ever tried nystatin yourself, you know what I'm talking about. No, good. You can consider yourself lucky, okay? Uh, I, I, it's, it's pretty nasty. Now, the problem, of course, is to make it palatable 
we often add a lot of sucrose to it. And that's just for the growing fungus needs, right? Why not give the fungus exactly what it wants, right? So this nasty but sweet tasting thing is in your mouth. The minute you put it in there, you salivate. And that means what? You dilute the antifungal. See, nystatin only works when it's in contact directly with the fungus. The minute you produce any kind of saliva, you're already diluting out the nystatin. Okay, so you get a mouthful of saliva and nystatin. What are you going to do? Well, eventually you're either going to swallow or you're going to spit it out, right? You can't hold it in your mouth forever. So you've lost the contact time. Now, some people say, well, that's fine. I'll just swallow it and it'll still work, won't it? Nystatin, unlike other drugs, is not absorbed into your general circulation when you swallow it. So basically, once you swallow it, it stops working. So that's why you got to hold it in your mouth long enough. Well, that's why it takes two weeks sometimes for nystatin to make any headway with oral candidiasis. All right, so break out the big guns then, right? Break out Diflucan or, or Mycelex, right? The azole antifungals. Mm-hmm. It's do a great job, by the way. Uh, Mycelex is great, but Mycelex is kind of the same thing with Nystatin. It's a wafer. It's about the size of a quarter. You have to put it on your tongue. You have to hold it there for about 20 minutes, and you have to do that five times a day and try not to chew it. Okay, well, that's easier said than done. And so that in itself is an obstacle. All right, the heck with that. Then let's use Diflucan. Just swallow the pill. Great. But if I had to pick one drug, Carissa, that I know for sure causes more drug interactions than any other drug we use in dentistry, it's Diflucan. Really? Oh, yeah. Diflucan slows down the liver and uh, inhibits liver enzymes. And that makes every other drug you take with the Diflucan that goes through that same enzymatic pathway last longer. Now, while you may think, and I may think that's, uh, oh, more bang for my buck, more drug for my buck, it's lasting longer, that leads to toxicity ultimately, because you're still, even, you know, that, that drug you took that's supposed to last 24 hours, now, thanks to Diflucan, lasts 30 hours, you're still taking one dose every 24. So it starts building up in your bloodstream and you get toxicity. So I would say that uh, every medication, even uh, medications that we use to treat uh, diabetes type 2, can fall into that framework, depending, of course, on what enzymes are involved in met- metabolizing those drugs. Wow. That, yeah, I didn't know that about Diflucan. So that's that's really that's good to know. Um, thankfully, I feel like here recently, I don't feel like I've seen any active candidiasis, you know, in, in my chair for a, a long time. So good to know. But I will tell you, Carissa, the one thing I would love to hear, hear everybody say after this podcast is, they heard it here from you and me. Um, candidiasis is a, is a known issue, but fungal pharyngitis is more of an issue that almost always seems to go undiagnosed. The patient doesn't know they have it. They can't open their mouth wide enough with a flashlight and look in the mirror to see the fact that they have a fungal infection in their pharynx. The only person I know of that has the ability to see that is somebody who puts their patient in a supine position, has a bright light and a mirror that they can adjust inside the mouth. Let's see, who would that be? Oh yeah, so hygienists and dentists have the, a perfect shot at seeing you know, that erythematous tissue, the, the white patches in the pharynx. So why does it go undiagnosed? Because nobody maybe thinks to look for it, the patient can't see it. But what that means is even though you've cleared the candidiasis from the oral cavity, 
those those colonies in the pharynx are just going to recolonize the mouth again and again. And that may be the source of why some patients get recurrent oral thrush. So the good news is if we can use something like Nystatin, we can tell the patient, okay, hold it in your mouth, you know, for as long as you can and swallow. And by doing that, they, they get both colonies. They get the colonies in their mouth and the colonies in their pharynx. But if they just have fungal pharyngitis, they might not even know they have it. But a hygienist who knows this says to the patient, do you wake up every morning with a sore throat? How'd you know that? Okay, could be sleep apnea. It could be, you know, they're just a mouth breather. It could be that they take medications that dry out their mouth. Maybe they have xerostomia or hyposalivation. Well, maybe they have fungal pharyngitis and haven't treated it. Now, well, how did they get fungal pharyngitis? Well, remember, and I'm glad you brought up before about comorbidities. Let's face it. Other people out there that have diabetes and cardiovascular disease might have respiratory disease, might have gastrointestinal diseases, and all of those can increase the risk of fungal pharyngitis uh, as well due to either medications that are used to treat respiratory disease or, for example, acid reflux making the tissues vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Sleep apnea is huge in, in, in creating that issue as well, just because of the reflux that that tends to instigate. So, yeah. So good questions that are easy to ask that probe your, your patient yes. and, and lead to breakthroughs. Because if you can treat that fungal pharyngitis with just nice that over two weeks, you've improved their quality of life tremendously. And they didn't even know they needed their quality right. of life improved. Right. It's, it's so interesting to me, the things that we as humans will just deem normal. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause it happens every day. So it's right. Normal. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, I say that all the time about, you know, issues like high blood pressure and diabetes, like the, all these things are so common. People think, oh, that's just normal. And it's like, unfortunately, at this point, I think it is normal, but it's not healthy. So oh, I think yeah. my best example of that is COPD. Patients who end up with emphysema or chronic bronchitis because the cough starts so insidiously because it starts and, and it's you know mild in the beginning and takes years to develop into a full-blown disease. After a while, people just think it's normal for them to cough. They don't realize. And they take things like Robitussin and, you know, Mucinex thinking, well, I've got a cough. I've always had a cough. You don't have a cough. You have COPD. But if we would have diagnosed it sooner, because, you know, if you'd brought it to our attention sooner, we could have got you on the road to treatment faster. So you're right. I mean, things become commonplace and therefore they become quote unquote normal. Yeah. And I think that is, you, you mentioned, you know, the hy hygienist, we do have this very unique and special position um, that we do get to look at all these different aspects and speak into our patients. And there is that level of trust. And, you know, once we show ourselves trustworthy, patients start to get more interested in what we have to say and what we see. And, you know, I love those conversations that I have with patients where, you know, they start to see, you know, you see the light bulb going off and they're, they're starting to think through and they're asking questions and they're saying, oh yeah, I have noticed that. And yeah, such a gift, such a fun thing. Well, yeah, think about it. You've got time with this patient. You don't see them every day. Their loved ones, their family members see them every day. They're used to their habits. They're used to the way they sound. They're used to the way they breathe. You know, to them, it's normal. But you see these patients twice a year. You've got time and you've got quiet, right? So you can listen to how they breathe. You can, you know, take in the fact of, you know, what they look like. You know, do they have edema? Is their skin the right color? Do they have pitting and, and maybe cyanosis in their fingernails? You're looking at all these things from a body-wide perspective because you've got the time 
I know a lot of hygienists listening right now saying, what do you mean? What time? I have no time. I know. <laughs> but I mean, you have the time to listen and take in the whole perspective of that patient and see them through eyes that normally don't see them every day. So yes. that you'll pick up on the little things that their coworkers and their family members just take for granted as normal for them. But, you know, then you say things like, I noticed you had difficulty breathing while we were working, you know, so, so what's going on with that? Or I noticed that uh, your breathing was labored, or I, I noticed that you're, you're, you're red, you know, your, your facial color is, is a little pink. Uh, I noticed that your gingiva are, are a little blue and I noticed your fingernails are a little blue too. Little things like that, you know, can, can lead to breakthroughs because the, that's the first time maybe the patients or anybody ever say that to them. Yes. I, um, I had a patient I've been taking care of for years and the time before last that he came in, he looked very pale to me and he had really low blood pressure and he is a diabetic patient who they've been working pretty hard to get a one. They just can't get the a one C to, to normal out. Um, his mouth looks great and we're maintaining that aspect. So I said, well, I'm, I'm happy to know it's not coming from your mouth. Um, but when he came back for this last three month visit, he's like, I have been through the ringer and he is having all of these issues and um, I won't go through them all, but he really had a lot going on that was very concerning. And, you know, I was like, I, I said, do you remember last time I mentioned that you look really pale? And he said, yes, that's what that was about. So yeah, you're exactly change right. In, change in skin color change in the amount of perspiration, change in the level and, and the depths of breathing, change in their pulse, change in their normal, what, what's considered normal blood pressure if you take their blood pressure every yes. time. Yes. Change in their vital signs. You know, if, you, if you're lucky enough to take blood glucoses or if you're lucky enough to do pulse ox and you see changes that are outside what you've been, that, that's why it's so important to do it every time, right? So that yes. you get yes. a baseline and then when they fall out of that baseline, that's the time to, to speak, right? As I said in the last podcast episode we did together, be the bartender, right? Listen and speak, right? When it's time and let them know what your concerns are. Plant the seeds so they go see their doc finally and say, hey, I was at the dental office and they said this is going on. Great. Started a conversation. Now we're on the right road. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Well, I, you've given me some really good food for thought tonight and taught me some things I didn't know. And I appreciate that. Um, do you have any final thoughts on the front of anything that we didn't cover that we might need to know as we consider our diabetic patients and the medications they take? If anybody's going to know that patient has diabetes before they do, it's going to be a hygienist because you're going to do those things that you do. You do that voodoo that you do so well, and you're going to see <laughs> Those, you're going to say, you're going to see bleeding. You're going to see blood vessels that don't look normal. You're going to see gingiva that doesn't look healthy. You're going to see hypo-salivation. You're going to see things that you know, because that's why you went to hygiene school. You learned this stuff. Now it's time to put it in practice. Your observations are gold because you're seeing things in the mouth and this thing doesn't lie. To me, it's the mirror to the rest of the body. If you can find it here, you can find it elsewhere. So that's your chance Maybe you don't know they have diabetes. Maybe they don't even know they have diabetes. Maybe no one's even brought it to their attention. But that's when you ask the question. Family history, right? Signs and symptoms, right? And, and tell them what you found and start the conversation. But diabetes is one of those diseases like hypertension, like other cardiovascular diseases that start out slow, that are insidious, and that sneak up on a patient 
because ultimately they don't know their habit, they have it, or if they think they might, they're in denial. As long as I never get diagnosed, I don't have it, right? And I can't tell you how many patients who, you know, after years of their friends telling them, you know, man, you don't look so good, go see a doctor, you know, who eat everything in sight and still lose weight, who, you know, feel like they just don't feel well, right? but wait and wait. And finally, at the urging of their family and friends, go see their doc and they find out their blood sugar is 420 and their A1C is 13.1. And they think, well, now I have diabetes. No, you had it all along. Right. Right. But maybe you weren't lucky enough to have a, have a hygienist who was able to tell you, because maybe you don't see a hygienist. If you're not taking care of your blood sugar, maybe you're not taking care of a lot of other things in, in your body. If you had a hygienist who really was in tune and you were able to see that hygienist on, on a regular basis and listen to the people around you, you know, maybe you would have been diagnosed sooner. Well, guess what? So why do we have to wait for them? But maybe as a hygienist, you step up and you take yeah, that first step. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is, that is our siren call, you know, call to action. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for being the wealth of knowledge you are and your willingness you. to share that. It is so much appreciated. And I know I, I want to have you back again soon because I would love to talk more. I need to learn more about all of the anti-anxiety medications because that is so, so common these days. And there are a lot of side effects from those that we see orally. So yeah. Hopefully that can be our next discussion, but thank you so much for joining us this week. And um, for all of our listeners, like I said, check him out on Instagram. He's got really great posts, really great content. He has a passion for teaching hygienists. So go check him out and follow him. And Tom, we will see you next time. Hey, Carissa, I learned a lot from you too. Thank you so much for being you. Thank you. Bye-bye everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.